From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Election season is underway, and the Colorado State Senate race is one to watch in the crucial midterms. Republicans are hoping to flip key seats in competitive districts. Here in Pueblo, especially, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we have a very, very rich tradition of working together and kind of crossing the aisle and supporting one another. But I just noticed on a state level, there was just so much division. CPR's public affairs team breaks down how this could all play out come November. Plus, deconstructing the powerful Latino vote in Colorado. A closer look at two high-stakes races on the line. And later, the fight for civil rights and the Black experience in America takes center stage in the works of composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins, who grew up in Pueblo. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Republicans who want to have a say in how Colorado is governed have their eyes on one big prize, the state Senate. Gaining control would mean having a deciding say in what does and does not become law in our state for the next two years. CPR's State House reporters, Vincent Berkland and Andrew Kinney, are with me now to talk about the battle for the state Senate. Hi, Vincent and Andy. Hello. Hi. Vincent, there's a governor's race this year, and all of the seats in the House are up for re-election. With all of that going on, why so much focus on the Senate in particular? Well, it's the chamber that the Republicans have the greatest possibility of flipping. The Democratic majority in the House is too big for that to be in play. Even going into a potential red wave election that is expected to be good for the GOP. And then in the governor's race, you have Democrat Jared Polis, who's an incumbent and has a lot of money to self-fund his campaign. Republicans are hopeful that Heidi Canal can beat him, but it's certainly an uphill battle. Mm. But in the state Senate, Democrats hold 21 seats. Republicans hold 14. So there is a possibility there. But Republicans would have to win almost all of the competitive seats to pull it off. Hmm. So, Andy, give us the lay of the land. How uncertain is control of the Senate? Well, it's hard to say just yet because there's so little polling and information about these races. But there are this handful of districts, maybe seven or eight, where the real fight's going to happen these are areas that Democrats have held mostly for the last couple years at least. But to take those seats back to the Republican side, the GOP would need to have one of their best electoral performances in years. Uh, they'd have to do a lot better than Donald Trump, for example, did mm. in 2020 by you know more than 10 percentage points in some areas. And in general, they'd have to just outperform what Republicans have been able to do recently. But on the other hand, like Bento was saying, it's an unusual year. Republicans are really betting on dissatisfaction with Democrats over inflation and prices, mm. turning into, uh, you know, the kind of usual red wave in the midterms that can happen when Democrats hold power. Interesting. Vincent, what would it mean if Republicans win control of the Senate? 
Republicans haven't controlled a legislative chamber since 2018, and a split legislature would obviously be a significant difference. So Republicans would have the ability to block Democrats from much of their agenda if they wanted to. So Democrats would potentially have to scale back their goals or work on issues with more bipartisan support and make concessions to Republicans. Now, there is still, of course, plenty of bipartisan work that gets done every year. But on some very significant issues last session, the parties were divided. Next session, I think we'll see Democratic bills around abortion access. That's just one issue that would play out much differently if Republicans controlled the Senate. Andy, the state just went through redistricting last year, Mm -hmm. which is a once in a decade process of redrawing political lines. Uh How big a role are those changes playing in the electoral math here? It makes the math really complicated because we now have all these new district lines and also the um, the districts were drawn with the idea of competitiveness in mind, among other priorities. And also there's just very few incumbents, especially because of the way the districts were redrawn. And so there's just so much change that it becomes a lot harder to predict how these new districts are going to perform. Now, Andy, you said this will come down to whether Republicans can win six competitive districts. Let's talk a bit about those races. Which ones are likely going to be the closest? That's right. So there there are these seven or eight that are up for grabs, and Republicans have got to win six of them, by my count, to really make a difference. And in terms of the closest one, there's a couple ways to look at it. One could be Senate District 15, which covers Western, Larimer, and Boulder counties in the Northern Front Range. And if you look at the f- last few years, it's almost dead even between Republican candidates and Democrats in that area. It's currently held by Republicans, so they actually have to take that, more or less, if they want to take the majority. But even though that's a pretty evenly split one, that's only the beginning of what Republicans have to win. They have to do a lot better and actually go into areas that lean more Democratic to take the majority in the Senate. Ben, to jump in here, what other races are expected to be very tight? Pueblo is competitive, and I describe Pueblo, that area, as a conservative Democratic region. So the area narrowly voted for Trump, and then the next cycle narrowly voted for Biden. Political insiders say this will be one of the toughest seats for Democrats to hold. And the Republican candidate in the race is actually a former Democratic organizer, Stephen Varela. And he says he wants to bring balance back to the state capitol. Here in Pueblo, especially whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we have a very, very rich tradition of working together and kind of crossing the aisle and supporting one another. But I just noticed on a state level, there was just so much division. And Varela is running against a short-term incumbent who was appointed to fill the seat earlier this year. And that's when the Senate president, Leroy Garcia, left for a federal job. And then um, staying in southern Colorado, uh, another competitive district is in Senate District 11. And this includes southeast Colorado Springs. And the seat is currently Mm. held by a Democrat as well. And like in Pueblo, voters there backed Trump in 2016 and Biden in 2020. Okay, so those are competitive districts in Pueblo and Colorado Springs. Where else? Well, to round it out, we have Senate District 27. And this seat includes some of the suburbs south of Denver and Centennial and parts of Aurora. Hillary Clinton beat Trump by about three and a half points there. And it's been trending Democratic since then. 
unaffiliated voters comprise the largest part of this district. The Republican in that race, Tom Kim, told me he's trying to steer clear of polarizing issues. I really want to focus on economy and affordability as the number one issue. Crime and public safety is a very close second for me because without safe communities, it's hard to live the rest of your life. Kim's opponent is Democratic State Representative Tom Sullivan. Sullivan got into politics after his son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. And Sullivan has been a strong voice for gun laws at the Capitol. So that's four races where Republicans are hoping to win, but they'll need at least two more wins in these competitive races to take the majority. Where else are they hopeful? Well, that's where it gets interesting is you get into these real kind of stretch goals. One example that they're trying to take would be District 8, which covers northwestern Colorado all the way from Steamboat Springs down into the I-70 corridor. Huge, huge area that ranges from conservative rural to resort town. They'd have to really do quite well to, to win that district. You've also got District 20 covering rural parts of Jefferson County. And also interesting is District 24, which is like a dense urban and quite Democratic area in Adams County. Uh, but Republicans think they can actually win it with support from Latino voters who mm. they've been doing a lot to try to reach out to lately. And interestingly, all three of those districts have a Democratic candidate who's already a state representative who wants to get a promotion, so to speak, up to state senator. Uh, also, Tom Sullivan, who Ben just mentioned, is in a similar camp. So these races are really scattered across the state from northern Front Range Mountains and mm -hmm. northwestern Colorado to Pueblo, Colorado Springs, yeah. and the Denver suburbs. But are there any common themes in what parties are trying to do to win them? Well, to get back to what we heard from Tom Kim, many of the Republican candidates are very focused on cost of living, the economy overall, and crime. Democrats are running on their message of tackling bills on climate change, criminal justice reform, upholding the election system. And Democratic leaders say they do feel like the party will hold on to the majority in the Senate. They argue voters just don't like Trump's continuing role in the Republican Party and the Supreme Court's decision on abortion. But former GOP state party chair Dick Wadhams is hoping that because Trump is not in office, it'll make voters take another look at Republicans. Well, there's no doubt that Trump was a big liability to Republican candidates in 2020 and 2018. Cory Gardner went down because of Donald Trump. It wasn't because Cory was a bad senator. Trump brought him and many Republicans down in 2020 and also in 2018. Trump is no longer president. I think a lot of the voters that were so opposed to Republicans because of Trump are going to give Republicans a fair shot this time. And I'll also add that Democrats are playing up the legislation they've passed to address rising costs, especially around health care, housing, as well as programs to expand kindergarten and preschool and public schools or for everybody. Andy, given the importance of these races to Republicans, political fortunes in the state, <laughs> yes. are we seeing a lot of spending so far? Uh, a fair amount. I mean, it's it, both sides are really ramping up the spending. It may not be an extraordinary amount by previous standards, but there are hundreds of thousands of dollars already going through the campaigns in these battlegrounds on both sides that are about even, actually. And even more coming from the dark money groups, the political groups that do outside spending. And it's just going to get more intense from here. You're going to be getting a lot of mailers and seeing a lot of ads. Democrats, for example, have $3 million 
waiting in reserve mm. to send all those wow. to uh, to voters. Before we wrap up, there seems like there's one wild card factor in all of this. Last month, a Republican senator became a Democrat. How has that complicated things? Yes, that was Kevin Priola, and he represents a district in Adams County. And when he announced the switch, uh, Priola said he was disillusioned by the GOP's failure to distance itself from former President Trump after the January 6th insurrection, Mm -hmm. and also the party's opposition to tackling climate change. Now, previously, Priola had been the most moderate Republican at the statehouse, so he voted with Democrats a lot and co-sponsored bills with them. He said he'll still vote the same, but it's obviously a huge deal that he switched parties. That's right. When he switched, it was a gut punch for Republicans <laughs> trying to retake the Senate mm-hmm. because now they have to retake one more seat wow. than they had to previously. Now they have to do the six seats instead of the five in these competitive districts. Um, so we'll see how they deal with that. Well, I know it didn't go over very well, as you pointed out. And I've seen there's a recall effort underway against Priola. Any updates on that? Last week, state officials said the recall's organizers could start trying to collect the signatures, roughly 18,000, required to put that question before voters in his district. Democrats have since filed a lawsuit to change how the recall would be conducted. And basically, the state said this recall would take place in Priola's new post-redistricting seat. Hmm. That seat leans Republican. Democrats are arguing that the signatures and the election should happen in his old district, which is more favorable to them. And it it may get even more complicated uh, because even if Republicans actually get the signatures to be able to launch this recall election, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they'll necessarily even be able to hold the election to recall him. Well, sort of a wacky drama unfolding here in Colorado. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you both. For joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. I've been talking with CPR State House reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland about the fight for control of the state Senate next year. When we come back, deconstructing the powerful Latino vote in Colorado, a closer look at two high stakes races on the line. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. Latino voters have proven to be a powerful force in Colorado, especially in tight races. This November, two key seats are on the line. CPR's Caitlin Kim looks at the outreach efforts underway to support the parties and their candidates. Gerard Torres is knocking on doors in Thornton late on a Wednesday afternoon. He's trying to convince people in this heavily Latino neighborhood to support Republican congressional candidate Barbara Kirkmeyer. A petite brunette with tattoos opens the door, and as Torres starts his spiel, she cuts him off with a quick question. Um, and so what party is she on? Uh, she, she is a Republican. Yes. We're, we're a nonpartisan. You'll probably have my vote, and you probably don't need to say anything else. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I am not a fan of the Democrat Party right now. So it's not always this easy. Most people are polite, but noncommittal. Since August, we have knocked on 
I'd say 4,000 doors. Angel Mirlos is strategic director for the Libra Initiative Action, the conservative group behind this door knocking. He says concerns about inflation and cost of living give Republicans an opportunity with Latinos who have typically supported Democratic candidates. They believe that if they vote Democrat, they think they're going to get the same result. And so we're seeing a, you know, well, I'm going to give a, the conservative vote a chance. Libra is focused on Thornton because it's in CD8, the state's newest congressional district, which is considered a toss-up race. It's also the district with the largest Hispanic population. The Republican National Committee even opened a Hispanic community center here. At the center's opening, Colorado RNC National Committee woman Vera Ortegon says when it comes to issues like securing the border, crime, and the economy, the GOP and Hispanic population are on the same page. I look at the values of the Republican Party, and then I look at the values of the Hispanics, and they're the same. Democrats feel differently. They've also been very active in CD8. Many analysts give Kirk Meyer an edge over Democrat Yadira Caraveo, but if Caraveo wins, she would be the first Colorado Latina in Congress. And that possibility excites Thornton Democrat Chantel Hernandez. This would be like a place where we actually have a voice. A lot of places are like really Caucasian. And there's a lot of places that I don't see a lot of people like me. So I'm really excited that, yay, we'll have a voice. Congressional District 8 isn't the only big race where Latina voters could be pivotal. In a close U.S. Senate race, they could also be key to victory. Democrat Michael Bennett was asked about that at a Voces Unidas action event in Glenwood Springs. What's your commitment to make sure that you're you know, doing your part in reaching out to Latinos? We are, we are going to have a vigorous program in, for TV, for radio, for digital. We have been, we're not just starting now. We've, you know, we've had a Latino steering committee for a long time that's helped. His Republican challenger, Joe O'Day, is also reaching out to the community in Spanish. An O'Day spokesman says his working-class background connects with working Americans, especially Hispanics and Latinos. But when it comes to values, former Pueblo State Representative Bree Buenteo argues the Democratic Party has a strong case to make. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to speak for all of Colorado Latinos, but I know that my grandparents came to this country because they believed in the American dream. Um, public education, <laughs> if you work hard, you're going to get ahead. Uh, fair day's wage for a fair day's work. And these are issues that Democrats to this day champion. But many Latino Democrats complain the party has been taking support from the community for granted. Teresa Trujillo is a community activist in Pueblo. She notes that she hasn't seen many people of color running or even encouraged to run for statewide office. And so I, I think that there are many ways that um, that Latinos aren't recognized as a strength in the Democratic Party and need to be recognized as a strength. But that may be changing. Democrat Beatrice Soto from Glenwood Springs is heartened by the effort candidates are making this year. Both the Democrats and the Republicans are really noticing the power in, in that voting block. But at the end of the day, I think if either parties are doing their job, it just helps our democracy. And I think Latinos will make both parties better at the end of the day. The ultimate test, however, will be what happens after Election Day. Whether the parties continue the outreach or if they once again fade away until the run-up of the next election. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Ballots for this year's midterms will be mailed out on Monday, October 17th. Election Day is Tuesday, November 8th.
When we come back, the fight for civil rights and the Black experience in America takes center stage in the works of composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins, who grew up in Pueblo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Rocky Mountain bristlecone pine is famous for its longevity. The oldest known living specimen near Pikes Peak is 2,500 years old. Native to Colorado, bristlecone pines grow in some of the state's driest, rockiest areas at about 11,000 feet. This harsh environment allows the trees to add only an inch of girth every century. It helps their survival that forest fires seldom start in bristlecone groves. Mostly barren ground means few shrubs and grasses as fuel, and there's plenty of space between the trees to keep fires from spreading. 14 of Colorado's living bristlecone pines are 1,600 to 2,100 years old, and their exact locations kept secret to help them continue their long, slow reach for eternity. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Civil rights and the Black experience in America are at the center of works created by composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins, who grew up in Pueblo. Her latest is an opera about Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy whose kidnapping, torture, and lynching in Mississippi in 1955 became a defining moment in the American civil rights movement. Watkins remembers the murder vividly. She was around the same age when it happened. She's now 82 and lives in Oakland, California, but she was born in Denver and grew up in Pueblo. She spoke with my co-host Ryan Warner in April. Mary, thank you for being with us. Happy to be with you. Thank you for asking me. Should it surprise us that you're still creating music at age 82? No, I don't think so. Bach, Handel... A lot of those guys uh, created into their old age, the ones that lived long enough anyway. (laughs) Your mother put you in piano lessons, I think, when you were three. Do I have that right? Yeah, I was almost four. I was three years and nine months, and she thought it would be a good idea for, uh, well, she always wanted a little girl to play the piano because she wanted to play piano. And she never had the opportunity to take lessons. So it was like, as soon as she thought it was possible, she had me start piano lessons. Did you like the piano lessons? Were you game? (laughs) To tell you the truth, no. I mean, it was like, okay. I was pretty young, you know. I remember them teaching me to count. And my mother said I was counting in my sleep. 
So she thought maybe that was a, you know, a little, uh, maybe a little too much pressure <laughs> on me, you know. So they dealt with it, and I dealt with it. Do you mean like counting beats? Yes, yeah. yes. You know, like eighth notes, one, uh, one and two, and and I would, you know, <laughs> I just <laughs> was doing it in my sleep. What were some of your first audiences? Well, in those days, they used to have uh, luncheons and they would have tea parties. <laughs> some Sunday afternoons, they would have tea parties. And I don't know, I guess they were raising money for, for whatever. And uh, everybody had a piano in those days. And so I would play a little song that I'd learned at the tea party. And that I remember one time sitting at the piano and when I finished, I didn't know what to do. And my mother had to come get me. And I was still pretty young. You mentioned Sundays. I wonder if, if church was ever uh, a place you played. That did come into play uh, when I was eight years old. We were people that went to church every Sunday. I was used to church music and that was not a strange place for me at all. When I was eight years old, they decided to have a little junior choir. And there were about 10 of us kids. And I was the pianist. And so every fifth Sunday, the junior choir would have the whole service. We would provide all the music. I remember some of the hymns that we sang. I thought they were kind of empty, you know, kind of dry. So I would add notes here and there, fill them out a little bit. And I, my mother sort of caught on to that. And, you know, I remember her telling me, stop doing that. Because I had a tendency to play by ear. In fact, that's what I liked the most. Hmm. But I wasn't supposed to do that. So I didn't do it except when nobody was around to, <laughs> you know, put a stop to it. Do you remember a hymn you modified? <laughs> oh, any of them. Any of them. I, mean, I think we used to do Holy, 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 There's a Fountain. and Oh, one that kind of moved and had rhythm and was fun. We used to sing, Oh, When the Saints Go Marching Out. Oh, yes. That was my chance to, you know, play and to bring some life to the music. I always had my own ideas about how music ought to sound. I guess early signs not only of you as a composer, but also as a jazz performer, which we'll talk about. So you were born in Denver, raised in Pueblo. Was Colorado a good place to grow up, would you say? Yeah, I think it was. I wanted to get out of Colorado as soon as I got to be up in age, but it's a good place for kids. Why did you want to escape? Well, at a certain point, it didn't have what I wanted in any way, really. I just wanted to get work, meet new people, have more available choices about life and, you know, just a little more excitement. Pueblo was kind of a sleepy town for me. Was it a racist town? It, it was as racist as most northern towns were at that time. Uh, I think I never saw any black people uh, working in places like um, where the public would have to interact with them. The only jobs they had were 
you know, janitorial, that kind of stuff made. And we could not eat in restaurants. That was forbidden. That didn't change for a long time. Uh, we just knew that that's the way it was. And we knew that racism existed and that it was, we weren't happy about it, but we lived with it. And I didn't encounter much of it at school, though. So it was starting to, you know, for the younger generations, open up a little bit. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are speaking with the Colorado-born and raised composer, Mary D. Watkins. Our colleagues at CPR Classical introduced us to your piece, Soul of Remembrance, from 1993's Five Movements in Color. This is the new Black Music Repertory Ensemble performing. Uh, what's being remembered here, and whose soul, Mary? It's the soul of the people, the soul of the Black people, the African American. They're beginning in this uh, country, on this continent. And it's about hope. It's about acceptance of certain, well, a certain certainties, but it certainly is a piece about hope. It's a slow march, kind of marching toward the future, just steadily moving and, and doing what, what could be done. It occurs to me as you speak how hard it must have been to have hope in shackles. Yes. Uh, well, the people were Christianized, and I think a lot of them brought with them also part of the spirituality from Africa. Mm -hmm. But since the tribes were all uh, mixed up, I mean, people were really um, separated from anything they knew or anybody they knew. But I think the spirituality uh, and the Christianizing of the people is what gave them hope. be like if I stepped into your imagination as you composed something? Like, is it a visual experience? Is it an auditory experience? Do you feel it in your body? I feel it in my body. It's auditory. To some extent, it is visual. 
for instance, for some reason, I always associate Soul of Remembrance with the color blue. It's kind of blue, silver, and that to me is a spiritual color. Is there a color that, for lack of a better term, you haven't yet painted in? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Okay. So you've got some yellows, you've got reds, you've got greens. These all yeah. have emerged musically for you. Yeah. I mean, they are, these colors are associated with pitches. And, of course, we're not just dealing with single pitches most of the time. Mm-hmm. So it's quite colorful. It's kind of flashing. For instance, the uh, fourth movement has a lot of red or dark red, cranberry red. Hmm. I, I guess that's the dominant color that comes to mind. I think of red as an angry color. Is it anger? Well, it's called slow burn. Uh-huh. That's the name of the movement. It, and it's not a fast-moving uh Uh, violence or anything like that but it is about weariness of waiting Uh, same old same old left Colorado for Washington, D.C. and Howard University, where you graduated with a degree in composition, eventually landing in Oakland, California, where you've lived now for decades. Yes. In addition to your classical work, you're also an accomplished jazz performer and composer, which I understand dates back to your time at Adams State in Alamosa. That's where I first tried jazz. I remember uh, jazz was very different from classical in that they would give you um, a lead sheet with the melody, and that's all. They'd have the chord symbols above the staff, and I was not used to that. I I didn't really know how to read chord symbols. Hmm. I knew some of the tunes that we were playing, so I could play them by ear, but every now and then they'd pull something up that I didn't know. So that's where I became um, acquainted with jazz. Was it freeing? Was it scary? It was fun. That It was fun. It was all the things that you were sort of restrained from doing in church, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this about, I mean, we'll be, just back up a second. I actually came to really love playing for church. I love the music. And if you listen to a lot of my music, you know where I've come from. Mm-hmm. My experience with jazz was that it was it was freeing in many respects. On the other hand, I had this uh, mentality of perfectionism. In other words, it took me a while to relax and know that there were no mistakes. Whatever you played became a part of the music, and mm. you were very free to explore and to go where you needed to go within certain bounds. Boy, that sounds therapeutic. I need jazz just to get past some of my perfectionism, Mary. Thanks for 
Thanks for the therapy session. co-host Ryan Warner speaking with Colorado born and raised composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins. When we come back, she talks about what inspired her to write an opera about one of the most defining moments in America's Jim Crow era. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. teacher who wants your students to appreciate music or a parent who wants your kids to think more deeply about it, we think you'll love CPR's podcast, Music Blocks. Music lovers at CPR developed it with help from educators covering all kinds of musical genres. Episodes are about five minutes long to fit into family time or classroom instruction. You can listen to the episodes in any order. Find Music Blocks everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The dehumanizing violence that Black people faced in segregated Mississippi has inspired all kinds of protest art. Composer Mary D. Watkins, who grew up in Pueblo, has channeled her passion on the topic into creating an opera about Emmett Till. He's the 14-year-old boy whose abduction, torture, and lynching in 1955 became a defining moment in the American Civil Rights Movement. Let's get back to the conversation she had with my co-host, Ryan Warner, in April. I'd like to talk about your latest project. You began working on Emmett Till, A New American Opera, after meeting the librettist Claire Koss in 2013. She approached you to compose the music. The opera is based on a play of hers. and You've called your role a labor of love, what drew you to the Till Project? Well, first of all, I had written before that, just before that, an opera called Dark River. Oh, yes, the Fanny Lou Hamer story. Yes, yes, Fanny Lou Hamer and SNCC, and it was about the voter registration in Mississippi in the 60s. So um, I was kind of open to something like Emmett Till anyway, Emmett Till, I remember when he was murdered, and that I'll never forget. I was very, very affected, deeply affected by that. And mostly when I wasn't feeling grief, I was feeling rage. I I just was so angry that this could happen in America. And um, I felt so bad for his mother and I just couldn't believe the um, the lack of any empathy at all for his mother. So 
what I felt myself feeling quite a lot of the times was this helpless, powerless kind of anger about the Emmett Till. And it stayed with me for a long time. I followed it in the, you know, magazines. I remember the Look Magazine article where they admitted that they murdered him. And you would have been about the same age as Till. Yeah, he was he was 14 and I was 15. And you, you talk about Look Magazine, you talk about the visuals as well, because I think of his mother, Mamie, who insisted her son have an open casket funeral. I mean, yes. the, the visual of his mangled body became a catalyst in the civil rights movement. In her words, I wanted the world to see what they did to my boy. Yeah. And I'll say that that image sticks out in my mind from my schooling. And so was working on this opera a way to channel all of that raw emotion? It was, gosh, I, it was almost like I could send my blessing. I could send my blessings to his mother, Mamie Till, and to him, you know, um, that's first and foremost what flowed through me as I worked on this opera. Uh, I worked through probably my anger, my rage about it. I don't feel that now. It was a very good project for me. But in a way, yes, it was like a prayer for Emmett and a prayer for his family. From the opera, here's mezzo-soprano Lucia Bradford who performs the role of Mamie Till. Thinking of Mamie Till, thinking of Fannie Lou Hamer, do you ever imagine what it would have been like to meet these women? Um, I hadn't really thought much about it, but for Mamie, of course, I would have wanted to comfort her and really work with her. She didn't, I don't think, march, but she went all over the country talking to people and never ever was there any trace of hatred or rage. She didn't seem to feel the rage I felt, you know. And what about Fannie Lou Hamer? Well, I just admired Fannie Lou Hamer. She was, 
it seemed to me from everything I read about her and listened to, I listened to lots of tapes and watched her on her documentaries. And it was like, she was pretty in your face in that she was not afraid to tell you what she thought. She was not shy about asking for what she wanted and, you know, demanding what she needed. And I admired her a great deal. Leading up to its premiere, Emmett Till, the opera, received some backlash, mainly aimed at your collaborator, librettist Claire Koss. Koss, who is white, grew up in the South at the time of Till's murder, and so she was deeply affected by it. The critiques centered around her inclusion of a fictional white school teacher in a story of Black trauma. Koss says the character is intended to represent the silence of good people. So a petition circulated to have the opera canceled. Uh, The Black Opera Alliance also denounced the production. Uh, For you, Mary Watkins, this opera was a labor of love. So what was it like to suddenly have to be on the defensive? Well, several things. I thought it was just on the face of it, it was ridiculous. That's because I knew the story. And what was ridiculous to me was the fact that the uh, criticism was not based on having seen the opera or read the libretto or even people, I think, who knew very much about Emmett Till. The argument was that this white woman had no right to she was exploiting black pain. It it implied that she was doing this to further her career. And both of us are in our eighties, of course, we weren't thinking about that at all. (laughs) It just was based on a knee jerk kind of thing. It was one woman who did this and people just jumped on the bandwagon and signed this petition, not really knowing what they were signing. Of course, based on what she said, Yeah, of course. I mean, if that had been true, but it wasn't true that uh, it was uh, a white woman exploiting black pain for entertainment purposes. Did you ever get to reach out to the person who circulated the petition? I did. I did. We had a meeting. The person didn't really know anything about opera, first of all. Not really. She was calling it a show at one point. She called it a play. She didn't know that operas are usually uh, that it's the composer who stands out, not the librettist. Nobody knows who uh, wrote the libretto for most of the uh, famous operas that are out there. So she is not a dumb person. I could tell that. She was intelligent, just ignorant of the facts. And she just didn't know what she was talking about. And it doesn't seem to me she's old enough to have thought through what this was about, because one of the things we needed to point out to her was that we needed allies, and Clara had been an ally from the time she was in college. So, you know, we can't, uh, we need each other. And uh, the young lady still feels that it should have been a Black person who wrote the libretto. Actually, I think it's a good thing. I think one of its strengths is that a white woman and a black woman created this work of art. 
I want to talk briefly about role models, or, or maybe the lack of them. So late last year, Terence Blanchard made history as the first Black composer to have a work presented by the Metropolitan Opera. That's yeah. the, the first time in 138 years of history. Um, mm-hmm. So with that in mind, Mary Watkins, as a woman, a woman of color, did you crave role models who looked like you? Well, I felt like I would have liked that. They weren't there, so I just went for it. You know, <laughs> whoever was, uh, I the only models I had were, were white, basically, European. Uh, Is it true models. that Liberace was a model for you? <laughs> Do I have that right? Well, Liberace was a pianist, and up until the time I first saw him, I was not at all interested in practicing it or... <laughs> You know, it just was like I wanted to be outside playing with my neighbor's kids, you know, my brother. And um, uh, you, you need a bigger candelabra, though, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I thought when I saw him, I thought, oh, my God, that's why my mom wants me to practice. And maybe if I practice, I could play that well. Well, I'd like to go out on another piece of music of yours from 2019. Before we hear The Initiate, uh, what can you tell us about it? Well, that was commissioned by the National Women's Music Festival in 2016. It was about sort of going out, taking risks, some of them dangerous, experiencing life, and finding your way back home. Mary, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins, who's still making music at age 82. She was born in Denver and grew up in Pueblo. She spoke with Ryan Warner in April. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.